you'll please take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2. So far in Mark's Gospel, we've discovered who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've talked about why Jesus came, not just to work miracles, but to preach the Gospel, the good news that Jesus Himself has come to save us from our sins through His suffering and through His sacrificial love. Last week, we explored how Jesus shows God's love. He touches an unclean man with compassion. He forgives a man of his sins and then helps him to walk. He welcomes and invites sinners and outcasts into a new community of faith. We talked last week a little bit about how the world defines love. And the world's definition of love is weak. It's powerless. It's inconsequential. It doesn't really seek the good of others. The worldly love really just seeks to make yourself feel good. Often at the expense of masking the real hurt, needs, and questions that lurk within people's hearts. But Jesus' love isn't like that. Jesus' love is transformational. You can't come under the loving gaze of Jesus Christ and walk away the same. And His love demands a response. You either accept it or you reject it. And if we accept Jesus' love, if we allow Jesus to touch our uncleanness, He will make us clean. If we believe and accept His forgiveness We will no longer be guilty, no longer ashamed, no longer separated from God. Listen, when Jesus pardons you, you're like a paralyzed man learning to walk again for the first time. You're free. You're loved. You're changed from the inside out. You're given a whole new identity. You become one who walks with God. And we saw that when you're loved by Jesus, you're included in a new family of faith. You know, maybe, maybe all your life you felt excluded. You felt like an other, like you didn't belong or fit in, like you weren't worthy or you weren't valuable enough. But like Matthew the tax collector, Jesus comes to you and invites you to leave all that behind and to join Him as His disciple, to be loved and welcomed by Him. So today, as we continue with this idea of Jesus' love, kind of building on last Sunday's message, we discover that when we experience the transforming love of Jesus, it bears certain fruit in our lives. There are some results that we will see in our lives when we encounter the love of Christ. And the first of those we're going to look at today is joy. Joy. When you're transformed by the love of Jesus, you will discover joy. Let's look at Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered them, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have Him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. 
No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. So at least some people in the crowds that are following Jesus are beginning to wonder about, his, about who he is, about his teachings, about his practices. They're taking note of more than just his miracles. And the first thing they take notice of is the fact that Jesus and his disciples don't fast. The Pharisees fasted. John's disciples were fasting. Why doesn't Jesus' disciples follow those examples? What gives here? And so Jesus answers that very good question with three short parables, three illustrations that each ask a rhetorical question. The first, Jesus uses the image of a wedding feast. The question is, should the guests at a wedding feast, uh, should they fast or should they celebrate? Should they fast from food or should they feast with the bridegroom? Well, obviously the answer to that is that it would be inappropriate to go to a wedding banquet and then to say, no thanks, I'm fasting. No, that's not what you do at a wedding. The second illustration Jesus uses is to describe an old garment that needs to be patched up. Would you use a new piece of cloth or an old piece of cloth? Well, you wouldn't use a new unshrunk piece of cloth because the minute you put that on that old garment that's already shrunk, it's already gotten to its shape, and you start to wash it, that new piece of cloth is going to shrink and it's going to tear and make the old garment even worse. And the third illustration Jesus uses is that of putting new wine into old, dry, cracked wineskins. And again, nobody would do that because it would break the old wineskin and waste the perfectly good wine. All three of these deal with the inappropriateness and the foolishness of such actions. You don't fast at banquets. You don't sew new cloth onto old. And you don't pour new wine into old wineskins. You just don't do those things. So what's the point of Jesus using these illustrations to answer what seems like a direct question? And we'll see Jesus often does this. Somebody asks him a direct question, and he starts to give them these kind of strange stories that kind of make you scratch your head. What does Jesus mean? Well, obviously, in the first mini-parable, Jesus is the bridegroom who will someday be taken away from the people at the wedding banquet. And so the point is, why would Jesus' followers fast when he's present with them? There will be a time for fasting when he ascends to heaven, when he is taken away from them. But for now, they celebrate because he is with them. Similarly, the good news of Jesus can't be sown over the broken old ways of the world. Rather, Jesus said that he has come to make all things new. And the old wineskins of Jewish ritual observance can never contain the new wine of the gospel of grace. See, the ways of the world and the Old Testament law, they're like old worn out garments. They're like stiff, unbending wineskins. But the new reality of the kingdom of God is like fresh, clean cloth. It's like new wine. All three of these images point to new life, a fresh start, celebration and joy. And so through these, Jesus reveals to us one of the values of the kingdom. The kingdom of God values feasting over fasting. Values feasting over fasting. Now, Jesus isn't saying that fasting is wrong. He's not telling us not to fast. He's not saying there isn't a place for that. In fact, Jesus is saying the opposite. Jesus anticipates that after his ascension, there will be occasions 
for his followers to fast. You know, fasting can help us focus on our relationship with God. Fasting can help us develop the discipline of self-control. Fasting can serve as a sign of submission or of repentance. Fasting does have value as a spiritual discipline, but Jesus' point is that life in the kingdom of God is like a wedding, not a funeral. And so the Christian life should be characterized by feasting and joy, not characterized by mournful fasting. Now, the sad thing is, most Christians are not known for being celebratory, joyful, feasting-type people. We, we have developed a reputation of being kind of sour, you know, dreary, you know, killjoys. Most people in the world look at us and think we're all like the church lady from Saturday Night Live, if you remember her. And some of that is genuinely our fault. And it starts right here in worship. When you worship God... Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Is that the way you do it? Or do you smile? Do you celebrate? Do you lift up your hands? Does your heart start to race? Do you get excited? Part of it has to do with us and the way that we worship. Or the way we talk in the world. Are you always complaining? Quicker to point out what's wrong with somebody than what's right with them. Quicker to point out what's wrong in your life and what's not going well instead of celebrating the goodness of God. Now, I'm not talking about just having frivolous fun. I'm not talking about Pollyanna-type perspectives or, or being the life of the party. In his book, Jesus, Man of Joy, Sherwood Elliott describes joy as more than fun, yet it has fun. He says it expresses itself in laughter and elation, yet it draws from a deep spring that keeps flowing long after the laughter has died and the tears have come. That's joy. Now, I think about the contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus, right? John the Baptist was this austere, severe, hermit-like man living out in the desert. He ate crickets, for goodness sake. Grasshoppers, I guess. Locusts. Not Jesus. No, Jesus was a man of extravagant joy. Jesus loved going to parties. He, was, he never turned down a dinner invitation. He loved to play with children. He loved social gatherings. Is it any wonder that in Galatians 5.22, in the fruit of the Spirit, the, the list starts with love, and second to it is joy. Joy. The first fruit in our lives that comes from Jesus' love should be joy. Yes, there are times for mourning and fasting and sacrificing for the sake of others or the furthering of the gospel. But even these things should be done out of spirit of joy, not obligation. Let us be people of joy. Because the kingdom of God is like a marriage feast. It's a banquet. It's a party. Now, the next two stories, and Ben alluded to these in his children's sermon... They tackle one of the worst infractions of Jewish law, breaking the Sabbath. Now, last week, we looked at stories that, that's, that make it seem like Jesus really just likes to do inappropriate things. He likes to break cultural and religious taboos, right? He touched a leper, an unclean man. That should have made Jesus unclean, but it didn't. Rather, Jesus made the leper clean. 
But touching a leper should have made him unclean. Jesus dares to forgive a man of his sins. Blasphemy. Only God can do that. And then Jesus goes and eats dinner with a tax collector and a bunch of other known sinners. Scandalous. And now, Jesus seemingly violates the Sabbath on two separate occasions. Jesus sure does love making hamburger out of sacred cow, doesn't he? What is Jesus up to? Why does he keep pushing the envelope and doing these outrageous things? Well, Jesus is demonstrating that a life in his love is a life that's transformed by joy and by freedom. That's the second fruit of a life that's been touched by the love of Jesus is a life of freedom. Now, I want us to look at these two stories one at a time. So let's look here at the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath was and still is a cherished, sacred institution among the Jewish people. I mean, God established the Sabbath in Genesis 2 right after He created humanity. He made man and woman, and the very next thing He did was institute the Sabbath. It's number four in the Ten Commandments, God's top ten list. It's number four. It's rather important. And in the Old Testament law, God gives some very specific and clear instructions about how the Sabbath is to be observed and the consequences for breaking it, which include being put to death. The Sabbath day for the Jews was as unique a sign of their special relationship with the Lord as was circumcision. It was part of their identity. And here in the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus is intentionally breaking the Sabbath. That's like declaring war on the Jewish religious establishment. You know, the way Jesus was declaring war. That he was declaring war on the legalistic burdens that the Pharisees placed on God's people over and above what God had commanded. In Luke eleven forty six, Jesus calls out the scribes and Pharisees for this undue burden they were putting on the people. He said, Woe to you as well, experts in the law. You weigh men down with heavy burdens, but you yourselves will not lift a finger to lighten their load. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, he, Jesus even gives harsher words to them. He says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Drop the mic. Wow. That is some harsh words, Jesus. See, the Old Testament law does contain restrictions about the Sabbath. Things like you can't kindle a fire for cooking. Don't gather fuel. So don't, don't go out chopping down your trees and get your fuel to get fuel for the week. Do that on the day before. 
Don't carry heavy burdens. Don't transact any kind of business. And that's about it. That's about it. That's about all the Old Testament law gives. So God doesn't give a whole lot of specifics. He leaves a lot of room open for interpretation here. And so, by the time of Jesus, that's exactly what the Jewish people had done. They'd interpreted. And they came up with what was called the oral tradition. So you have the 613 laws that are actually found in the Old Testament. And, and, the, and the Jewish people, mainly the Pharisees, decided, let's build a fence around these 613 laws to, to try to protect the people so that people aren't going right up to the edge of breaking the law. Let's put a guardrail up. Have a little buffer. Keep people safe from breaking the law. But the problem was the Pharisees began to treat the fence as important and authoritative as the laws they were meant to protect them from breaking. And so it got to the point that if you infracted, you had an infraction on one of their rules and regulations, it was as serious to them as if you had actually broken one of the Ten Commandments. So on top of the handful, just a scattering of specific Sabbath laws in the Old Testament, the Pharisees added 39 additional things that you could not do. For example, you could write one letter, but not two. You could erase one letter, but not two. So if you wrote your one letter and messed up, had to erase it, oh well, I'm done for the day. If you dropped something with this hand, you could pick it up once. If you dropped it again, you could pick it up with this hand. If, like me, you're a klutz and you drop it a third time, it has to stay there till tomorrow. You bend over to pick it up that third time, you've worked on the Sabbath day. And then they created this idea of a Sabbath day's journey. So it was how far from home you could travel on a Sabbath day. Beyond that, it became work. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, they were lawyers and they were good at their job. So they found all kinds of loopholes, all kinds of ways they could get around this fence. So, for example, you know, the Sabbath day's journey was from your abode. So they said, your abode isn't where you sleep, it's where you eat. So that if they took a lunch with them, they could travel a Sabbath day's journey, set it down, and travel another Sabbath Sabbath day's journey. Because that is now their abode. That's where they put their lunch. So they had all these ways of getting around things. Well, as you can imagine, this made it complicated and burdensome to know whether you're keeping the Sabbath or not keeping the Sabbath. And in the end, they missed the point entirely of the command to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The spirit of the law was totally overshadowed by the letter of the law. If you look back in Deuteronomy 23, it clearly states that it is permissible. If you're on the way and you pass by a grain field, you can pluck a few heads of grain and eat it, which is what Jesus and his disciples were doing. That was okay to do. What you couldn't do was take a sickle and go out there and harvest it. There was a difference. So Jesus and his followers were not breaking the Sabbath law just the Pharisees' additional rules. And to further make his point, Jesus used a story from 1 Samuel 21 about David and his men actually going into the tabernacle and eating the consecrated bread that belonged to the priests, which was an Old Testament law. You couldn't do that. God struck down people dead for doing lesser things in the Old Testament, but God didn't judge David for it. In fact, the priests willingly gave him the bread. The point Jesus is making is that if a hungry king and his men can violate a clear Sabbath restriction in God's Word and not suffer judgment, how much more can the Son of God and His followers pick up a few grains because they're hungry on the road? Because Jesus isn't just King of kings. He isn't just the King of Israel. Jesus is the Lord even of the Sabbath. See, the Pharisees had it all wrong. 
in their mind, people were to be enslaved to the Sabbath. Which is why its observance had become a burden instead of a joy. It was restrictive, not liberating. Ironically, they had made, they had made keeping the Sabbath work. You had to work at not working. How crazy is that? So Jesus reframed the Sabbath, saying, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath, yes, it's a command, but it's also a gift given by God a day of physical rest, emotional refreshment, spiritual renewal. It's given for our good. But wait, there's more. Let's read on in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Another time he went to the synagogue. This is a separate occasion, maybe the next, the next Sabbath day, or it could have been on the same Sabbath day, we don't know. A man with a shriveled hand was there. Maybe he had bad arthritis, maybe he had crushed it, it was crippled, something was wrong with his hand, he couldn't use it. Some of them, meaning some of the Pharisees and scribes, all these people that were really just starting to not like Jesus, they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath day. That kind of makes me wonder if one of the Pharisees didn't say, hey, I know a guy with a crippled hand, let's invite him to church so we can see what Jesus does. Jesus heals him, then we got him. Because that's working on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus, he saw right through them. He knew what they were thinking. Jesus said uh, to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, meaning the scribes and Pharisees, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? They remained silent. Crickets. He looked around at them in anger. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Much like Jesus last week healed the paralyzed man as a symbol that he had the authority to forgive sins. Here Jesus heals the man with the crippled hand. To demonstrate he has authority even over the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. It's his command. He came up with the idea. And in his question to them, Jesus actually references their own rabbinic law that made provision for some work on the Sabbath if it was necessary to save life. Well, in the Pharisees' minds, a man with a crippled hand wasn't the same as somebody whose life was at stake. Therefore, Jesus was in violation of the Sabbath. Now, in Luke and Matthew's version of this, Jesus also uses an example from the Old Testament law. He says, if you have a son or an ox or a sheep that falls into a well or gets stuck in a ditch, would you not pull them out immediately, even on the Sabbath day? And the answer is, yes, of course you would. Or as Jesus asks here, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To, to save life or to kill? Well, the answer is obvious. But the point Jesus is making here is, look, evil and death don't take a day off, do they? Evil and death are working even on the Sabbath. So is it not incumbent on the people of God to do good and to save life even on the Sabbath day? Is there any better way to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy than to love and serve and help people whom Jesus Christ loves? God is much more interested in how we treat others and in us loving and serving others than keeping the rules. But the Pharisees were blinded to this. 
They were blinded to a miracle happening in their midst. All they could see was that one of their rules had been broken. So through these two episodes, Jesus reveals to us how His love transforms us by setting us free, not just from our sin, but setting us free from our own futile efforts to try to overcome sin on our own. We can't do that. You can never do it on your own. His love is what gives us true freedom because His love shows us another kingdom value. God values grace over law. He values grace over law. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, or celebrating a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. See, when we attempt to quantify our spirituality through a list of do's and don'ts, we become victim to religious legalism. And that always leads to a joyless, shallow faith that's characterized by pride and judgmentalism. Rather than experience freedom, we actually become enslaved to our own efforts to overcome our slavery to sin. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were laying chains of self-righteousness on top of people's chains of sin. They weren't setting anybody free. And so Paul uses this analogy of a shadow. A shadow has no substance, does it? But it points to something that does. And Paul is saying, look, the laws, the festivals, the ceremonies, even the Sabbath day in the Old Testament, they're shadows pointing to Jesus who is the real thing. He's the reality. He's the one who sets us free from sin and even from our own efforts to try to earn God's love and favor, which we could never do anyway. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 8, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He says, Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son, a daughter, belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus came to set us free. Now neither Paul in Colossians 2 nor Jesus in Mark 3 are saying that the Sabbath is a bad thing. They're not saying that we shouldn't set aside a day for rest, refreshment, renewal, and worship. The Sabbath is a command, but it's a gift. It's a gift from God. It's meant to remind us of who we are and whose we are in Christ Jesus. Having a day of rest and worship helps to set us apart from the rest of the world as God's people. It reminds us that our worth and our value isn't found in what we do, but in who we are. And Sabbath also helps us keep our lives in a healthy rhythm. And that's the third thing. The fruit of Jesus' love is joy. It's freedom. And it's a rhythm. Let's look at Mark 3, verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the lake, meaning the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard all He was doing, many people came to Him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and even the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon, people from all over, Jews and Gentiles alike, were coming to Jesus. Because of the crowd, He told His disciples to have a small boat ready for Him to keep the people from crowding Him. So Jesus had to have an escape plan, basically. For He had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch Him. They were crowding in on Him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell anyone who he was. 
Here, Mark gives us another summary passage. Like in, in chapter 1, we saw a brief summary passage just kind of giving us a summation of Jesus' ministry, what all He was doing, what that looked like. And notice something in this summary. He teaches large crowds, but also the small group of His 12 disciples. He heals people's physical needs, but He also deals with their spiritual problems as well. Jesus works and He rests. He gathers with the crowd, but He also withdraws to be alone. Jesus illustrates how God designed our lives to work in a rhythm. A rhythm in which we live and worship and work and play. And this rhythm is worked into the very fabric of creation. The Sabbath day is a reminder and acknowledgement of this rhythm of work six, rest one. Work six, rest one. Work six, rest one. Like your heartbeat. Like your breath. Like musical notations, right? A piece of music tells our instrumentalists and our handbells that did such a great job this morning when to ring that bell and when to silence it. When to play a note, when not to play a note. That's the difference between making noise and making music. You have to have that rhythm. I don't have rhythm, so be thankful that we have people that, that do. Jesus took regular time to get away and pray, to be still and quiet, despite the, the busyness of His ministry, despite the urgency of His brief time on earth. Jesus knew He had to have time to get away and to rest. Reminds me of a story I heard about a couple of lumberjacks that were competing with each other. And, and one lumberjack said to the other, said, I want to challenge you to a, a one-day wood chopping contest. We're going to chop wood all day and see who has the most wood at the end of the day. So that guy, he got busy with it. He was just chopping away. He only stopped to take a very brief lunch. But the other man took a leisurely lunch, took several breaks throughout the day. Well, they got to the end of the day, and the challenger was dismayed at the fact that this other guy had chopped far more wood than he had. And he said, What's that? How, how did you do that? Hey, every time I looked at you, you were sitting down. You were taking a break. How did you chop more wood than me? Did you cheat? And the other man said, Well, you didn't notice, I guess, that every time I sat down to rest, I sharpened my axe. Jesus took time to sharpen His axe. Sabbath rest gives us time to sharpen our axes, to refocus our mind and to refresh our our soul. And so Jesus' example shows us that the kingdom values work and rest. It values work and rest. Not over rest, but and rest. When you're transformed by the love of Jesus, you no longer have to do it all on your own. You are not the Messiah. He is. You're not the Savior of the world. He is. You're not the one that holds all things together. He does. He gives you joy. He gives you freedom. He helps you live your life in a healthy rhythm. Are you doing that? Is the pace of your life sustainable? Or are you letting yourself get worn out and worried and anxious and tired? Listen, 2020 was a year to make us all worn out and worried and anxious and tired. Amen? What are you letting drain you of the joy of the rhythm of life that God wants you to have? What are you laying on yourself and burdening yourself down with? What expectations, what religious 
observances are you letting keep you down? Maybe you do it because you think you have to earn God's love. Maybe you do it because you feel like you've got to impress other people. Maybe you do it because you think, I've got to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And it's not working for you. And then you find yourself imposing those expectations and man-made rules on other people and judging them for not living up to the expectations you yourself aren't living up to. Is your life one of joy? Is it a life of feasting and celebrating the goodness and love of God? Or do you find your life to be dreary and driven by obligation and duty? Maybe this morning you need Jesus to restore to you the joy of your salvation. You've lost it somewhere along the way. Listen, Jesus wants you to know and experience His love today so you can live a life of contagious joy, of spiritual freedom, and a rhythm of working for the kingdom of God and enjoying worshipful rest. I love the message version of Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 Jesus gives us a beautiful invitation. And I pray that this resonates with you. Just maybe close your eyes even and just listen to this and imagine Jesus saying this to you right now. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus invites us this morning to throw off the oppressive yokes of sin of self-righteous efforts, the oppressive yokes of this world's twisted values, and to take on a new yoke, an easy yoke, a light yoke, a life-giving yoke, His yoke. Jesus this morning offers you joy, freedom, and a rhythm of life, of purpose and work and accomplishment, but also rest and enjoyment and worship. You accept His invitation today. Will you turn to Him for that spiritual rest and that personal fulfillment that you desire? Listen, Jesus died and rose from the grave so that you could have a life of joy and freedom from sin and a life of working for His kingdom and enjoying His goodness. This morning, if you have any doubt in your heart and mind that you belong to Jesus, that you've turned from sin and self, you've placed your trust in Him, not by any effort on your own part, but to freely receive His gift of grace, I pray you would come today and say, Pastor David, help me know Jesus. Help me. I want want to know this joy, this freedom. I want to live in a better pace and rhythm of life than I'm living right now, and I need Jesus to help me do that. And if you're already a believer today, where have you lost the joy along the way? Where have you put burdens and chains upon yourself God never intended you to carry? Where can you look at your life and say, yeah, I've gotten out of rhythm. I'm not in tune with God here. This altar is open to come and to pray and to do business with Him. You stand and pray with me. Father, thank You for the example of Jesus that You created us and intend us to live a life of joy, of freedom, and of rhythm. Yes, there's a time to work, but there's also a time to rest. There's a time to sacrifice. There's a time to play. There's a time to be out there with people meeting needs. There's a time to come away and to spend with you and to be refreshed. 
Father, if there's anybody here today that Your Spirit has spoken in a specific way, I pray they would come and respond in prayer by making a decision, especially if they need to come and give their life to Jesus Christ. May nothing get in their way. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.